this morning. We've been doing a lot. So we got one kid in college. We got one on the way next year, and then two more after that. And when you're going to college these days, when you're, when you're trying to raise a kid, it's like you're trying to prepare them, because what does the world tell us how to prepare a kid for the world? You've got to take the ACT test, right? You've got to score really high on the ACT test so that you could get a scholarship to go to this university, or even worse and more insidious, oh, we'll give you $100,000 in student loans. In what other part of our world, right, can you get $100,000 given to a 20-year-old unsecured, except for in that world. But this plan is to prepare them through our education. They got to get good grades, got to get involved in sports at school. You got to get involved with activities and clubs at school so that maybe you can get the scholarship. Does any of this resonate with anybody, right? This is, this is what it means to prepare a kid. Now, some of us in here are past college, and you've had a lot of years in between you and college. And ask yourself this question, when it hit the fan in your life, when, when it came unmoored, what did you fall back on? Your English major? Your ACT score? But no, look, I got a 32. This shouldn't be happening in my life. We fall back on our faith. And what's happening is our world is telling us to prepare our kids in a way that will leave them completely unprepared for what life will throw at them. When Jude Verse 3 says, talks about contend for the faith, which is what we're about to go into for these next few weeks. This isn't some grandiose, we're going to carve out a place to, in our politics and in our, our rights. This is a more, way more personal journey than that. This is us saying, contend, we're going to struggle for the faith that was entrusted to you. And in struggling for it for our children as well, for our grandchildren now. And contending for it, I was up at 6 a.m. this morning. You know why? Not to show off, but I was running, right? Because at some point, I got to contend for the fact that I'm at that crossroads at 46 where I could go and eat Cheetos the rest of my life or I could take a right. But I'm going to have to contend for that. Do you know what I'm saying? There is a struggle and a contention for that that the faith requires, that the faith deserves in our lives. And the good news is this. We are we serve a God that has a faith, given us a faith that is not intellectually untenable. And Elisa Childers, uh, I was so excited when Elisa agreed to do this. We've known each other a while. Uh, we were at church together. We served in uh, music business together. Some of you guys might remember a band called Love Song in the 70s, if you're old enough, right? Some of you are young enough. Um, that was her daddy. The, literally, not only the forefather of Christian music, but like the founder. He was driving around in like a van so that we could drive in a bus later. But that was the world that she grew up in. And it was a world where, and I'll let her share her story, where a uh, good kid that loved the Lord and spirit filled and her faith got rocked just like some of yours did. Uh, some of yours is, and some of yours will be. And so Elisa has agreed. She's going to be spending every Wednesday night with our youth. I brought her here this morning because I want you to know that it's important for you to get your kids there on Wednesday nights. It's important for you to invest to contend for the faith in your kids. So without further ado, would you guys welcome Elisa Childers? Thank you. <laughs> Well, I'm so thrilled to be here with you this morning, and I'm even more thrilled to get to talk to your young people over the next several weeks. And uh, do any of you remember a Christian band called Zoe Girl? 
Okay, well, <laughs> I am one-third or was one-third of Zoe Girl, um, and the only reason I'm bringing that up is because it's a part of my story. My, my years on the road is actually a part of my story. I'm an old mom now, so <laughs> I don't jump around like I used to, but um, basically, I'm going to talk to you today a little bit about what apologetics is, why we are, as Christians, commanded to do it, and I'm gonna share with you just kind of an overview of what I'm gonna be sharing with your kids over the next several weeks on Wednesday night. So my story is basically, I grew up in a Christian home. I loved Jesus as far back as I can remember. In fact, as early as I learned how to read and write, I began to read and study the Bible. I still have my Bible from when I was about nine years old and everything is highlighted and notes and everything. I'm, I loved the Word of God. I loved the Bible. I loved Jesus. And my parents modeled for me a very genuine Christianity. Not that they were perfect, but they prayed in front of me, read their Bibles in front of me, repented in front of me. My mom had us, we, I grew up in Los Angeles, she had us down at the Fred Jordan Mission on weekends working the soup lines. I regularly watched my mom love on prostitutes and drug addicts and give a bowl of soup to a smelly homeless person. This was the DNA of the Christianity that I grew up in, and that's why I love the heartbeat of this church, because you all get that. A lot of churches don't get that, but you all do, because that's your heartbeat to be a conduit, to be the, the hands and feet of Jesus all over the world. And that is a very, gen it's a great gift you can give your kids actually, is to model that in front of them. So I love the work that you all are doing here, but that's, that's the, the type of Christianity I grew up with. I, I watched the power of God work itself out in people's lives. I watched the power of God change a drug addict into something else, change a prostitute into something else. I watched it happen, so my faith was not blind. I didn't have a blind faith, but what I learned when I was older is that I had an intellectually untested faith. That wasn't a big emphasis in my home. As Darren mentioned, my dad was a you know, singer and traveling the world. He was a hippie musician. It just wasn't, you know, the intellectual contending for the faith just wasn't really a big part of, of my life. In fact, I remember I didn't have any doubts about God as a young child. And th there was one time I remember just kind of wondering, like, if we can't see God, how do we know he really exists? So I asked my dad, and hippie musician that he was, he said, well, you know, you, f you just feel him. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I feel him, all right, awesome, great answer, Dad, you know, <laughs> rock solid. And so that was about the extent of my doubt until I was an adult. And so I, I, grew, I moved to New York for a little while, did some street ministry out there with um, underprivileged youth in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, moved back to Los Angeles, got involved working with the Dream Center. How many of you know the Dream Center out in LA? Yeah, they do amazing work with homeless and just all throughout the community. And uh, again, just always the DNA of the Christianity that I knew. And so then I joined Zoe Girl, we started traveling around, and you know, I'll be honest with you, as somebody traveling around on a tour bus, gone most Sundays, I really began to become disconnected from church. I just was never around when church was happening. And so I, I tried to study my Bible on the tour bus and we just, we just didn't have, at the time, a lot of accountability, a lot of spiritual influence on us as we were gone most of the year. And so, not that my faith became weak, but I, I think it made me vulnerable 
for uh, lies and deception that could come in. And I started to question some of the things I was seeing the church doing, you know, some of the conservative world. It's like, man, have we gotten this right? And I began to question those things. And so this was back when, I mean, you've probably all heard of progressive Christianity now, but back then it was kind of not even really a term yet. And so some of these progressive speakers and writers started to emerge questioning the same things I was questioning, and rightly so. And so I, I, went, I got involved with a church, my husband and I, several years ago. Uh, this was now after Zoe Girl had ended and I had a new baby and I've got this little baby and I'm feeling like my world just went from waking up in a different city every day with you know, catering and water and fruit platters to, I'm serious, to like being fat and having this baby in my arms and just thinking like, man, what is my significance in the world right now? Which is so sad because that's such a lie. But, but I bought that lie and, and I was like, Lord, I need some significance in my life. And so we started going to this church uh, in town here and uh, the pastor called me in his office and he said, I think I've got something for you. I want you to join this class that I've got going on and it's kind of a ministry training class and at the end of it, you know, we'll, we'll bring you on staff and you can really have influence here. And I thought, well, that sounds great. I didn't really pray about it all that much because it just sounded great, honestly. And so I joined the class and it was in the context of this class that the pastor revealed that he was actually an agnostic. Now he didn't say this on Sunday morning, he didn't say this to his congregation, but he said it to us. And he began to lay out intellectual objections to the Christian faith that are the same arguments atheists use. Now see, I grew up doing street ministry. I met a lot of atheists growing up. Never once was my faith rocked by an atheist. I expected an atheist to not believe. But when it was in the context of this pastor that I had come to trust and even come to respect over a year of attending this church, and he starts making some of these arguments that the Bible isn't reliable, that a bunch of it's probably not even true, and that, that the people who wrote it down got it all wrong. And uh, you know, Adam and Eve probably didn't even really exist and all kinds of these types of arguments. And I mean, I'm, you can imagine, I'm sitting there in my first class, I got my notebook and my Bible, I'm ready to learn, you know? And he says, now how many of you, just to kind of get a temperature of the room, actually still believe Adam and Eve were like literal real people? And I'm like, excuse me, what? Like, I never heard that in my life. Never had heard, I didn't know that there were Christians who believed that Adam and Eve didn't really exist. I didn't know that. The difference now is all of your kids are gonna know that people believe that because of the internet. You know, this was, I mean, the internet was there, but man, as each year goes by, more and more false, crazy information gets, gets uh, sent out into the world via the internet, social media, and often, they, they've done studies, they know that of the kids that leave the church after high school, you know, they go off to college, they're isolated already, they're feeling a little vulnerable, and then they see a YouTube video that completely deconstructs their faith. We're gonna get into that in a second. But, so my story is that my faith was rocked because I had no answer. I mean, it's because the Bible says they were real people. But then he would say, well, yeah, but if you look at how the Bible was transmitted, I mean, we don't even know that what we have is what they wrote, and it's probably just a myth anyway, and has a nice moral meaning, and I never heard that. And I knew he was wrong in here, but I didn't know how to, to talk to him from here. So after a few months, I left, we left the church, and my faith was seriously rocked, you guys. And, and I wanna 
preface, I told you all that about how I studied and read the Bible as a child. I mean, I would, on high school, in high school, I would get to school an hour early and walk around my campus and pray. I was that kid. I'm not telling you that to brag, but I'm telling you that so that you will understand that no kid is safe from intellectual objections to Christianity. I mean, I was that kid. I was the chaplain of my Christian high school. I was that kid. I went on mission trips, spirit-filled. All, I'm telling you, I never dreamed my faith could be rocked. But I remember just, just sitting as I would rock my daughter in the darkness, just singing hymns and, and just saying, God, I know, but I don't know. I mean, I was really doubting even the existence of God. And I look back on that time now and I realize it was a really good thing that happened because it forced me to discover why I believe what I believe. See, the gospel is what we believe, right? And apologetics is how we know what we believe. So let me just give you a little bit of a definition of the word apologetics. So in Christian apologetics, it's twofold. How many of you have like, kind of think you know what apologetics is or maybe you're not so sure? Okay, so it's, it's kind of, it's becoming more well-known. But basically, apologetics does not mean we're apologizing for being Christians. A lot of people think that. That's not what it means. Apologetics is just the gathering of evidence for what we believe and then being able to articulate that evidence to other people. That's really as simple as it is. And apologetics, I mean, there can be apologists for health food, for Buddhism, there's, there's Muslim apologists. It's just basically people that are able to articulate why they believe what we believe. So an example of apologetics would not be if somebody says, well, how do you know the Bible's true? And then you say, well, because the Bible says so in 2 Timothy. That's, <laughs> I mean, you, know, you can see why an unbelieving skeptical world would find that circular, right? You can't say the Bible's true because the Bible says so, because I could just write something down and say this is true because it says so. It's not a good enough reason. And so my heart, my passion is to equip kids with these reasons. And you know, this, apologetics can span a broad range of topics, philosophy, science, history, archeology. span There's all kinds of disciplines that all converge under this umbrella of apologetics. So just to give you some stats here, we're living in a culture where our beliefs are under attack like never before. And the attack in America, here in our culture, is intellectual. That's the attack we're facing right now. It was different in other, culture, in other times, other generations, but right now, the attack on your kid's faith and on your faith is intellectual. We know from studies, it depends on which study you read, but somewhere between 70 and even up to 90% of Christian kids that grow up in church leave the church after high school. And when they went around, it was the Barna and Pew Research that did a bunch of this research, and they asked these kids why they left. And they had a broad range of, of uh, control groups. So, I mean, they, they got an accurate answer. And the number one, one of, one of the number one reasons was intellectual doubt. The kids felt like when they had a question about God, they were either told not to question God, not, not to question those things, or they were told just have faith. That's what they were told, and so they get to college again, they're isolated alone, they see a YouTube video, and all of a sudden everything gets thrown out the window. Now what do you think is the number one intellectual uh, issue they had? Can anyone guess? That's a big one, suffering is a big one. Why does God allow evil things and bad things to happen? Can anyone else guess? What was it? That's a big one too, anybody else? 
authenticity, salvation. The number one was evolution in the intellectual world. And what it was, it's not that they, uh, you know, thought, oh, okay, you know, I'm gonna convert to, uh, they, they were given an oversimplified version of evolution in the church and in the Christian home so that when they got to college and they realized all of the complicated uh, processes and all of the things involved in the theory of evolution, they thought, well, they didn't even understand it. They didn't even get it, you know. All I heard from them was, oh, people don't turn into people from monkeys and, you know, and that's not even what evolutionists claim, that we are, that monkeys are turning into people. They believe that, huma that humans evolved from a particular primate that is now extinct. So it's, it's not that simple. So an over, oversimplified version or even mocking kind of, uh, you know, theory of evolution they get and they go, wow, I mean, this makes a lot of sense. So I'm gonna talk to your kids about evolution. We're gonna talk about that stuff. So when it comes to evangelism, our culture is very resistant. Now, as Darren mentioned, and I mentioned, my dad was a child of the hippie days, the 60s and 70s. You've all heard, have you all heard of the Jesus movement that happened in the 60s and 70s? Well, this was a, a revival that happened among a lot of hippies that were searching for God. Now, notice what they were doing. They were searching for God. The whole atmosphere in the late 60s and early 70s was saturated with spirituality. People were looking for God. They, my dad tells stories of hitchhiking and they'd pick up a hitchhiker and be like, hey, what have you learned about God? And I tried the Arantia book and I, I tried Buddhism and what are you trying? And they were on the search for God. But our culture now is not on the search for God. In fact, we have a very skeptical, a very cynical, sarcastic, unfeeling culture when it comes to issues of God. So back in those days, you could sit up on the street corner with your guitar, sing about Jesus, and tell some people that Jesus wants to save them from their sins, and they're like, I'm in, that sounds great. Because they're already looking, they already believe God exists, they're just looking for him. They know something's wrong and broken that needs to be fixed in their own selves. That's not the way the culture is now. So we have to do evangelism a little bit different. We are in a postmodern culture now, which basically is marked by a denial of absolutes, right? So if you go out into the world and you ask somebody, two plus two equals four, that is an absolute truth. Most people are not gonna argue with you on that. They'll, you know, if they go to the bank and the, their statement says they've got five grand in the bank and they get there and the teller says, no, you've only got a dollar, they're gonna say, no, no, it's absolutely true that I have five grand in the bank account. They're not gonna probably argue with you on that. But what this culture has done, and it is all over, it's like saturated with Christian kids. I talk to Christian kids all the time and they have almost all the time, 99% bought into this idea that absolute truth does not exist when it comes to religion and morality. So if you ask a kid, is this an absolute true, uh, is this a truth claim that's an absolute truth claim? You know, two plus two equals four. They'll say, yeah, that's an absolute truth claim. Is it, and I, I'm not kidding, this happened just a, a couple weeks ago at a Christian high school with Christian kids. Is it morally wrong to torture a five-year-old until he dies for fun? Not one kid said that you can say that's objectively morally wrong because their culture has trained them to believe that that's a matter of opinion, right? I know, I'm looking at some shocked faces, it's true. Even among Christian kids, it's very difficult to convince them that racism is objectively wrong. Now, they all hate racism, 
They don't like it, they'll fight you, they don't want racism to exist, but they won't say it's objectively wrong, it's my opinion versus your opinion. So that's a big one we're gonna talk about with your kids is morality and objective truth. So David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons wrote a book called Unchristian. And this is another obstacle we have intellectually when it comes to evangelism, possibly the biggest one. When they asked non-Christian youth What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Christianity? What do you think they said? Hypocrites. What is it? Hypocrites. Hypocrites? What else? Anybody take a guess? It's a good guess. Easter Bunny. Judgment, Easter Bunny, yeah. Those are, I'm sure those are all big ones. But the number one thing, in fact, 91%, guys, 91% of non-Christian youth said that the first thing that came into their mind when they thought of Christianity was anti-gay. That's, that's the obstacle. So when we talk about apologetics, I can go up to somebody that's got that, that preconception and tell them that Jesus loves them and died for their sins, but they've got this huge obstacle up in front of the gospel. And what apologetics does is it can move that obstacle out of the way so that they can take a clear look at the gospel. Apologetics isn't gonna save anyone by itself, but as Ravi Zacharias says, and I'm gonna read a quote in a minute, it can help move those intellectual objections out of the way so the person can actually take a look at the gospel in the first place. We have to take a lot of steps back with this culture. And part of what I love doing with young people is I don't just fill their heads with a bunch of information. What we actually do is teach them how to have these conversations with people in their lives by asking really uh, pointed and gentle questions uh, I, I teach these kids, you can have a conversation with Jehovah's Witness, even if you know nothing about Jehovah's Witness, by knowing the right questions to ask. And so it's, it's very practical as well, as we don't want to turn them into little apologetics robots that go and just mow everybody down with truth. It's, it's about presenting that truth in a way that is palatable to the person they're talking to. So why apologetics? We have to do apologetics, you're already doing it. Every single person in this room, and this is what I tell the kids too, every single one of you are already doing apologetics. Every single one of you are already doing theology. Theology is just what you think about God. Theos is God, ology is the study of. It's what you think about God. You're already a theologian. You're already an apologist. So don't you wanna be the best one you can be? I mean, yes, it's the Holy Spirit that draws people to salvation, but don't you wanna be the best evangelist you can be? And so that's what I tell the kids, and it's all based on 2 Peter 3.15. This is the biblical mandate to do apologetics. It says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, remember that word, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and with respect. So when it says here, honor the, uh, Christ the Lord as holy, being prepared to make a defense, that word in Greek is the word apologia. That's where we get the word apologetics. And in the context of first century uh, Christianity, in that Greco-Roman world, if you were uh, accused of a crime, you would have the opportunity to come into the courtroom and make an apologia. And that means make a defense for yourself. You could bring evidence, and it was expected to be evidential. It was expected to be the kind of thing where you present evidence. And that's the word that is used here, to make an apologia. That has to do with the logic center of your brain. That has to do with logic, reason, evidence, that word. This verse does not mean you tell people how good Christianity feels to you. 
This verse has to do, it's a, it's a courtroom term, and it's a term that has to do with logic, reason, and evidence. And I think a lot of Christians don't necessarily always get that. We think the reason for the hope within you is like, Jesus saved me, I used to be on drugs, I, now I'm not. I, I have this peace in my heart now, and, and I just know it's true because I feel it in my heart. Well, guess what? Mormons will sell you the exact same thing. Muslims will tell you the exact same thing. Jehovah's Witnesses, will tell you the exact same thing. So who decides which one of those worldviews is true? And these are the kinds of things that trip kids up when they, go, when they go off to college and all of a sudden they're exposed to wider worldviews and they say, gosh, maybe what I was taught all along isn't even true. So I mentioned that apologetics is a clearing of the obstacles. This is the quote from Ravi Zacharias that's so great. He says this, argument doesn't save people but it certainly clears the obstacles so they can take a direct look at the cross. Support the argument justifiably, but recognize it is Jesus Christ who you need to lift up. And it is the Holy Spirit who brings about change within the human heart. An argument may remove doubt, but only the Holy Spirit can convict of truth. Now, I don't need to convince you about the Holy Spirit part. You guys get that. And that is great, because there are groups of Christians you have to convince of that part of it too. So you guys, you've got a lot of, you know, this is great, and I love that you're doing this for your youth. So with that said, that's sort of the basic case for doing apologetics as Christians. And let me just tell you, moms, dads, you need to be the apologists in your home. And as kids even are very young, just think about issues of truth, absolute truth. How many times, moms, have you been exhausted, you're tired, everybody's fighting and you're so mad, and, and one kid says, oh, I just saw a bird and it was blue. And your other kid says, no, it was red. No, it was blue. No, it was red. And what do you say? It can be both. Well, you have just taught your kids to be uh, relativists, you know? And so if we learn apologetics, we start thinking this way. You can say, okay, the bird is either blue or it's red. It can't be both unless it's got a mixture of both. But if you're saying it's solid blue and it's solid red, one of those is wrong or they're both wrong, but they can't both be true. What a great lesson to start teaching your seven-year-olds about absolute truth, right? So these are the kinds of things we need to be thinking about. And when it comes to evidence, I think the resistance with some Christians sometimes is they think, well, faith, what is faith? And this is where I start with the kids, is a definition of what faith is. Because a lot of Christian kids have a bad definition of faith. They have the, actually the atheist's definition of faith. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist and evolutionary biologist at Harvard, defines faith as believing in something despite there being no evidence for it or even evidence against it. And I think a lot of Christian kids buy into that definition. And then they'll say, but what about when the Bible says faith is the evidence of things unseen? Well, think about it this way. What is unseen that even Richard Dawkins agrees there's good evidence to believe in. The wind, the wind air, gravity, love, beauty. These things exist, we can't see them, but we don't believe them without evidence. The Bible actually never asks you to take a blind leap of faith because of a feeling you have in your heart. John the Baptist is a great example. If you remember the story, he's sitting in prison and this is before widespread persecution has broken out in the church. So this is blowing his mind. I mean, he has baptized Jesus, seen the Holy Spirit descend like a dove, heard the audible voice of God say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. 
He saw that happen, he was a witness of that. And then he calls Herod out on some, some sexual sin and he gets put in prison. And he's going, what is happening? And he doubted. John the Baptist doubted. And he sent his disciples to say, are you the one or should we look for another? Oh man. And what did Jesus say? Go back and tell him, stop doubting. Just have faith. No, he didn't say that. He didn't send John's disciples back and say, you shouldn't question these things. You've already seen that. What did Jesus do? He performed three miracles and he said, go back and tell him what you saw. Jesus gave evidence to John the Baptist when he doubted. He didn't shame him. He didn't take it lightly. He gave him evidence. Isn't that amazing when you really think about it? Who's the biggest doubter in the Bible? Doubting Thomas, right? We all have heard this story. Actually, Thomas wasn't a doubter. He was a skeptic. He was a rational person. <laughs> Put yourself in his position. So you weren't there when the risen Christ showed himself to all the other disciples. And they come to you and they say, Jesus, you know that guy that, that we watched die that is dead and buried? Yeah, he's back. Would any of you go, yay! <laughs> Think about it, I mean, you'd be like, uh, mm, mm, I don't think so, I need to see that. So Jesus appears to Thomas, and he says, Thomas, you should have just believed. No. Thomas, you should have just had faith. No, he says, Thomas, put your fingers in the holes, feel for yourself, it's me. He offered him evidence, didn't shame him. Jesus was an evidentialist, if you really think about it. He was happy to offer the evidence. In fact, I tell the kids this, this is so amazing. The Christian faith is the only religion that I can think of that I've ever found in all my studies that actually stands or falls based on a historical event being true. Think about it. It's not some guy sitting under a tree getting some sort of message or revelation and then other people, getting other people to follow it. It's not just some idea somebody came up with and said this is a good way to live, we should do this. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. What Paul is essentially saying there is that if Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead, Christianity is not true. And you might as well throw your Bible out the window and do what you want because it stands or falls on that event. And did you know that there's a lot of very good evidence that Jesus was in reality, in physical reality, raised from the dead, even if you don't even open your Bible. There is good secular evidence to show that that's an actual event in history. And that's what it all comes down to for me. What I'm gonna be walking your kids through is we're gonna start with that definition of faith to get that ordered rightly in their minds. Then we're gonna talk about worldview. We're gonna talk about what are some different worldviews you're gonna encounter when you go out into the world or even turn on your computer nowadays. Here's what theism is, here's what atheism is, agnosticism, deism, here's all these different worlds. Here's why these ones fail. What is truth? Truth is an idea or statement that corresponds with reality. So which one of these worldviews corresponds with reality? Because you all wanna operate in reality, right? You want your worldview to be the one that corresponds with what's actually real. 
So let's look at all these worldviews. Which one corresponds with reality? Which one has evidence to prove it's actually true? Which one answers the questions of life the best? Where do we come from? Where are we going? I mean, we all look out in the world, we can see something's broken, right? So worldview answers the question, what's gonna fix that? Why is it broken in the first place? Where do we go after we die? These are all worldview questions. So I wanna teach your kids to think what is called worldviewishly. So everything they watch from movies to uh, listening to music and video games and YouTube, whatever they're taking in, that they put it through the filter of worldview. So we start with, with truth and worldview. If we can establish that truth exists and can be known, then truth about God exists and can be known. So then we get into some arguments for the existence of God. And I haven't even opened a Bible yet with these guys. So we go into that and there are great scientific and philosophical arguments that you can come to the, the uh, conclusion that God exists and even something pretty close to the God of the Bible exists without ever opening a Bible. If we can establish God exists, then how might he communicate his existence to the world? We talk about that. Then we talk about Jesus. Who was Jesus? What did he claim? Was he really resurrected from the dead? We talk about evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, and if we can make the case that the resurrection of Jesus happened, in reality, then what Jesus says goes. I mean, the guy who said he was gonna raise from the dead, dies, raises himself from the dead, he gets to say what to believe about the Bible, right? And that's, that's my view. I mean, if Jesus said it was the word of God, then I say it's the word of God. The guy who raised from the dead gets to make that call. And then we talk about biblical reliability and how it was transmitted and it's reliable and authoritative and inerrant and all of these things. So it's sort of a building, we, we make building blocks with the kids over the course of the week and then I'm gonna end with this. The, the, what I'm gonna start with is something I call atheist role play and there's nothing that I do that hurts my heart more <laughs> than atheist role play. And what I do is I put on my atheist glasses with the kids and I actually put on a pair of glasses and I'm a pretty good atheist, I'm sad to say, because I hate doing it. I literally hate doing it. And I will not let them get away with any Christian pat answer, and they get mad, and they get, I mean, they just start, I mean, you would not believe that, I mean, adults too, I've done it with adults, and they get almost more mad than the kids, and you think, they're gonna hurt me. But <laughs> I know the atheist arguments, and I will not let them get away with any Christian pat answers, and what happens is, it, it pricks them, it's hard, but they get excited and they bring their friends the next week. And I would rather them hear that stuff for the first time in a safe place with me than when they get in a college classroom and they have no defense because we will unpack all the things that I said as the atheist when I take my glasses off. So that is basically an overview of what I'm gonna walk your kids through and I'm super excited to do it. And I'm thankful to you all for letting me do it and for bringing me here today. So. Um, that's all I got, dude. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I never shared this with you, Elisa, but uh, one of the things that rescued my faith when I was 22 years old was Stephen B. Hawking's A Brief History of Time, which wasn't the Bible. But he, anyway. Yes. Yeah, he wasn't trying to, but he totally he did. did. Like, Whoa. Yep. This is where we're going as a, uh, as a church family. Um, in these next few weeks, in these next few months, we spent the last few months building ourselves up. Why? Because we're going to need it. The culture has changed. Um, there is a, a literal onslaught against the faith of you and your children. And it's, as a pastor for seven years, I'm telling you, and there are some of you in this room, 
probably that are, you're, you have the same questions as your kids, you just don't have the courage to ask them because if you, you're afraid it's a theological Jenga. If I pull this out, the whole thing falls apart. We want this to be a safe place to, to discuss. Because here's what I know, 46 years old. He wasn't afraid of the questions because there are answers. Never let your faith be shipwrecked on the questions. Figure out the answers and then let the chips fall where they may. Um, and that's where we're going. So uh, Discover is right now. So if you've been a part of the fellowship, you've been kicking the tires, like, man, what, you know, why is this or that? This is the chance to get to meet the staff. That's in the basement. Uh, we have a basement, so that's something you'll learn about our church if you're new. Uh, <laughs> that was new. Um, down the hall and to the left, just look for a basement uh, on the left. So that will happen immediately. You get to meet some of the staff and, and, uh, and understand what's happening there. And then if you've been kicking around and you think, man, I, you know, I really do want to know more, we'll discover 103. Uh, no, no. Conduit Connect is a chance for a light lunch. And you might, yeah, man, I'm already here. You know, I'm, I'm, hang out for a little bit or just come back afterwards. You're welcome to join us uh, just for a chance to meet the just staff and pastors and everything. So that's immediately following second service. Am I forgetting anything, Mo? If you don't do anything else this week and you've got kids or even grandkids for all I care, we're going to be in the auditorium because our basement's already full with teenagers on Wednesdays. We're bringing them up here so that there's room for more. Uh, so if you've got kids or grandkids, do whatever you can. You know, they've got volleyball practice, whatever. It's not volleyball season. Whatever it is, push that aside if you can and to get them here on, on these, these Wednesday nights in October. So go and be blessed and we will see you next week.